0: so then if you awaken from this illusion persistence of vision ladies and gentlemen welcome to the persistence of vision podcast inspiring conversations on land sea in the air and yes even in outer space hello folks i am lance fever Myers, and i am lbdo
1: this is the pov publishing podcast if you want to check us out online it's pov-publishing.com there you can read comics by world-class artists you can read essays you can read poetry you can check out the links to all our past podcasts and you can check out the link that takes you to go purchase my novel why so much that came out last june please do it it's a great great book isn't it it's the
0: greatest book and if you haven't read it you're a damn imbecile (laughs) i I pity you and i Pity you, but pity only goes so far. Well, uh, speaking of uh, of fools, you have a book coming out too, don't you? Yes, I do. I have a book called The Goddamn Fool coming out on the twenty first. Come join us at Malvern Books, seven p.m. on the twenty first to release The Goddamn Fool.
1: Everybody who's anybody is going to be at Malvern Books on September twenty first that night at seven o'clock. LB's going to read some selections and he's going to sign books, and it's going to be a great time.
0: Yeah, refreshments.
1: Fantastic. Okay, well, we have a great guest today. Our guest today is an old friend of mine from the Austin-slash-Corpus music scene. And he's my friend, too. Hell yeah. He's not only a great songwriter and a riveting performer, he's a brilliant journalist who's been writing about music and and the culture surrounding it for many, many years. Today he's here to talk to us about one of his favorite books... And uh, one of ours, and one of my absolute all-time favorite books. I was so excited to hear that that's what he wanted to talk about. It is "Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas" by Hunter S. Thompson. Say hello to Tim Steigle. Hey there, Lance. Hey,
2: laughing boy, as you introduced <laughs> yourself to me all those years laughing ago, Laughing right? Yes. And I gotta say, I'm probably an imbecile. You need to get me your book, man. <laughs> oh well, we will get you
0: a copy, absolutely. You're not the first imbecile we've had here on this. Yep. And hey, <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's no shame in it. No shame whatsoever.
2: I just, I'm. I was happy to see you guys are doing books now. Yes. Yes.
1: yes. And you know, um, and. and the podcast, I think this is the first time we've had a guest who uh, has been mentioned in a previous podcast. When we had Richard Guerrero <laughs> here a couple of weeks back, he mentioned you as one of the pioneers of the Corpus Punk scene back in the 90s, right? Care to
2: comment? That would be back in the 80s, 80s. actually. Right, okay. Um, yeah, well, basically, the deal was, was that, you know, there was no punk scene to speak of in Corpus Christi, and especially not in Alice, where I grew up, mm. Uh, mm. close by. Um, Patty Smith came through in 78. I was at that show when I was 12. That was my first. <laughs>
1: nice. Seriously, that was nice. my,
2: just, bef- the, just before I turned 13, uh-huh. um, September 12th.
1: Of and that. you've yeah. never been the same since.
2: That's <laughs> very, very true. I mean, I always tell the story about how Patty, you know, I couldn't get to see the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. Okay. I grew up, with this very conservative Christian family in this small Texas town. And, you know, the Sex Pistols were on the evening news. Every night, Walter Cronkite could barely get their name out of his (laughs) mouth, you know, and like— Oh no, young man, you are not going to see that band, but I could get away with seeing yeah. somebody with a name like Patty Smith. Okay. Patty okay. Smith sounds <laughs>
0: like a folk singer.
2: Exactly. The thing was, what mom and dad did not realize was that the first words out of Patty's mouth that night were Jesus died for somebody's sins and not mine. <laughs> you can say that in a song? <laughs> Yes, you can. I mean, that was a big important thing, you know. Um, the next year I saw The Clash up here at the Armadillo. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was the, officially the show that made a punk rocker out of me. Okay. That was what made a musician out of me. I'm watching Mick Jones jumping around and you know, rockabilly clothing with a ducktail haircut. He's got a Les Paul custom, you know, mm-hmm. down around his crotch, <laughs> and he's doing these Pete Townsend leaps, and I'm just looking up and thinking, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Right, and, right. Uh, but, you know, Corpus, yeah, We Patty had come through. We'd had people like the members and Iggy Pop coming through, but not a lot. There wasn't really a scene. There was a band called Zip that were doing something very akin to the Dead Boys. Mm. And uh, they used to get themselves booked on, like, C-101 Battle of the Bands, and they'd be wearing ripped-up Judas Priest T-shirts and throwing dog food at the audience and had to... The Corpus Christi Police Department had to escort them out of the venue, actually. Wow, yeah. But... uh, There wasn't really a scene per se, but about 1985, you started noticing other hands reaching for that black flag record, Uh that record bar in the, you know, the Sunrise Mall in Corpus Christi, reaching for DOA. And summer of 1986, or spring, actually, of 1986, I wrote a scene report for Maximum Rock and Roll for a scene that did not exist. (laughs) I completely made this up because there were There were groups of us that knew each other. It's like, okay, there's something that could happen here. And at the end of it, I wrote... And this is one of my first nationally published things, by the way. Mm -hmm. I wrote, if you want to book a show down here, give me a call. I listed my number. Two days later, I get this phone call as I'm trying to wash dishes. Hey, Tim, this is Eric Tunison. I'm the drummer for (laughs) DeKreutzen. What? Wow. You know, so I... I'm getting a cold of these guys who are friends of mine, like Adam Grossman, later of uh, Anchor Watt. Mm-hmm. You know, Danny Loner was also later in Anchor Watt, and he eventually ended up in Nine Inch Nails. Was
1: Adam Grossman screw Adam Grossman?
2: La- yeah, later okay. on he did screw right. and then ended up in ministry and all right. of that. Right, Still a good friend of mine. Yeah, I um, see him around sometimes. And, uh, you know, just there, there's about 10 of us. We just pulled $10 together. We rented the Galvan Ballroom. And um, which was, you know, an old 40s ballroom that like big bands used to play at, mm-hmm. had a sprung dance floor and all that, you know, going on. Um, and uh, we got a local new wave covers band. I think it was the little ducks from Mars who uh, who provided the p a for that night. We needed a band to open. so. I talked to a friend of mine named Steve Fish, whom I think YouTube n- might know. He played bass. We found a drummer named Tommy Godley. Of course, I renamed him Tommy Ungodley because we were a punk rock band. <laughs> yeah, punk rock. I had songs. I had a uh, Les Paul. I had a uh, Fender Super Reverb and a MXR Distortion Plus. That was the beginning of the Hormones, and uh, that was my first gig. That was the first really official. Punk rock show in Corpus Christi, Texas. I mean, that began a scene. There were 100 people that showed up to that show. I think we charged $4 at the door. We ended up giving all $400 to DeKreutzen because, uh, you know, their tour van had busted in Memphis and they had to rebuild the engine. Crazy. And uh, yeah. So yeah, we didn't even get we didn't get paid for our first show, and that was voluntarily so. We wanted to make sure De Creutzon had something to get back home on. It right, was the last right. date of the tour. But
1: well I like how you said, you know, that okay, so you wrote uh about a scene before the scene existed. And I think that's a great little segue into talking about <laughs> what it what has become known as gonzo journalism, right? It's like writing and including yourself in in the work, including uh, your own emotional state,
0: right? sort of violating the rule that the reporter is not supposed to be part of the story. Right. right.
2: You have to understand. Okay, you have you need a little history about what Gonzo Please, was yes. and what it came out of. School. Us. Basically, Gonzo journalism is to what was called the new journalism mm-hmm. that, as uh, hardcore was to punk rock, mm-hmm. it was more extreme. And actually there was only ever one gonzo <laughs> journalist, and that was Hunter Thompson. Right, right. But I mean, you know, you'd had you'd had guys like Tom Wolfe, mm-hmm. uh, who had been, you know, he kind of developed the new journalism form just because he sent in his notes from covering an auto an auto show in New York City to his to an editor at Esquire, and they said to him these notes are a perfect article. Yeah. Mm. You know, and it's like, he was just writing from the first person. He was doing all the things with onomatopoeia that we became, <laughs> you know, we yeah. became familiar with, with Tom Wolf. And, uh, you know, you had Guy Talise, who was also writing for Esquire. A bunch of these guys wrote for Esquire, interestingly enough. Yes. Guy Talise wrote a great profile of Frank Sinatra where he didn't actually did ever talk to Sinatra. He just observed the guy as he had a cold and he was, you know, recording his 50th anniversary album or whatever it was. I mean, he was about to turn 50 and all of that. And, you know, he interviewed everybody except Sinatra and came up <laughs> with probably a better portrait of Sinatra than you will ever read. Right, yes. Now, Hunter had, before doing this, he'd written a book about the Hells Angels where he went deep inside, and it's a little bit more straightforward than what you came to know Hunter for. Yes, it's not a hallucinogenic It's not him just riffing and almost reporting on anything except the subject, but he was definitely a character in his own book, and the book ends with him getting his ass kicked by the Hells Angels. <laughs> yes, he gets stomped. Yeah, he got stomped. He started then, like, doing stuff for um, some sports magazines and stuff like that. That was where he first met, uh, actually, uh, his famous cover artist, Ralph, Ralph Stedman. Right, yeah. That's they met up when he was covering the Kentucky Derby for.
0: Yes, the for, Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved.
2: Yes, that was that's a really great piece, and you know, it's uh, Ralph Steadman knew he was, he said I knew I was onto some somebody completely different when Hunter you know lit a cherry bomb and threw it up in the VIP section. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: uh, and in fact, the uh, the book that we're here to discuss, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, starts out with Steadman and, and Thompson. Going to Vegas to cover a race. Actually, it wasn't Stedman; it was Oscar Acosta. Oh, oh, yes, yeah, that's that's right, Oscar Acosta. Yeah, that's his attorney, in known all as of the this. Samoan attorney in the book.
2: Yeah, but he was ac- Oscar Acosta
0: was uh, the Brown uh, Panthers, right?
2: Yeah, pioneer of uh, one of the pioneers of Chicano power, basically. Yeah,
0: Brown something. Uh, he yeah.
2: had he was Hunter had been working on a story at the time about Acosta and a uh, a client of his named Ruben Salazar. Yes. And uh, some somewhere in that time I get, he gets this assignment to cover a motorcycle race called the Mint 400 in mm. Las Vegas. And so he's, he says to Oscar you want to come along? You know and they get a trunk full of drugs and other supplies that are necessary. And of course we come in as they're 40 miles outside of Barstow in the Nevada desert when the drugs started to kick in. Yes. You yes. know. Yes. When you read Thompson, if you've ever heard an interview with him, you start reading the book in his voice. You can't help yes. but do that.
0: Well, the, And, and the, the wonderful thing about this is that he, he does want to disguise Acosta's identity, mm-hmm. and so he creates this attorney character. Yes. Acosta was an attorney, but uh, he calls him my attorney, and he refers <laughs> to him as a Samoan. And uh, Acosta apparently was was furious when he found out. <laughs> he said that, that he didn't care about having his identity hidden and that he he, he, he said that Samoans were South Sea waterheads. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Thompson,
2: interestingly enough, gives himself a, a different identity. He refers to himself as Raul Duke. And, of course, as we know, Doonesbury later had a Hunter Thompson character named Duke. Yes. Mm, right. Duke Harris. That's is, right. Uh, Zonker Harris's uncle. That's right. That's right. Uh, but, you know, so what ends up happening is Hunter does everything but cover Mint <laughs> 400. <laughs> I think he's there for a total of one day. Yes. Goes apparently on an epic binge. And I
0: got to say. I don't know. He's in L.A. for more than a day. He's there for several days. Las Vegas. He's Las there Vegas, for several right, days. LV, I mean, yeah.
2: But you no, know, he's. I mean, at the Mint Four Hundred. Oh, at the I, Mint Four Hundred. I think he's only there for maybe even six hours at the most.
1: There for just just for the takeoff, right? And then he's
2: just pretty much. Well, he said all away. you could see
0: was dust,
2: right? <laughs> yeah, that's what they, exactly. Couldn't see a damn thing. It was <laughs> like in the desert, you know. And he goes off on an epic drug binge, and what ends up happening is he owes Rolling Stone an article. Now, well, shit. What am I going to do? He just ends up writing gibberish, just notes, just riffing. You know, it's all entirely stream of consciousness, you know. And but his thesis is that he's going to find the American dream. Yes. Whether he does or not is up to debate, but it's, you know, an entirely, it's a hilarious read and a very substantial read, even though, you know, he's basically doing the equivalent of, of a freshman trying to write his his thesis you know and he's done he's not spent an hour in the library but he sure has drunk a lot of beer and taken a lot of speed you know? right right
1: but, you know you got to wonder reading something like this um, you know how much well okay first of all how much is true uh, secondly how much is is ca- like pre-calculated how much of you know because you can't I mean, do you really believe, like, all the things well, that the are Thompson's going on? to credit,
0: he always claimed that it was entirely true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like every, yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Except for the Samoan part.
2: He tells the truth even when he's lying. Exactly. Um, you know, I've often thought about this myself. You know, there are times where I have to put the good doctor's works down because it's awfully tempting to try to duplicate this lifestyle. Yes,
0: Yes, that's what I told our intern union. Well, not (laughs) not so much the lifestyle, but I said, if you read Thompson and then go try to write, (laughs) you're going to find that it is a full-time effort to not write exactly like him or at least or do a, do your best imitation of him. Exactly. But I was, I was going to, you
1: know, uh, when we were talking to Shannon McCormick about infinite jest and the quote that you put up was that in in lesser hands it would have been a disaster, mm-hmm. right? And how many people have, you know, you're talking about tried have tried, these, to, write have like tried to write like this and it it it's so it's alluring. You it makes you want to live like this but it also makes you want to write like this and I feel like 99% of the time it's going to be just Drivel. It's going to be terrible. And somehow in in his hands, it becomes one of the most riveting, it's compelling works. Story, right? right. It well. absolutely is. So what what is it about him that separate that makes him capable of creating a work like this?
2: his talent yes his talent and the fact that he just had an incredible mind this was a guy that you know you may it on the surface it may not look like it but he was incredibly dedicated to his craft i mean <laughs> he lived it <laughs> he really was i mean apparently as a young man he would retype novels like the great gatsby and works by hemingway so he could figure out how these guys constructed their mm. books, how they constructed a sentence. Hmm. I mean, essentially, he was doing cover versions <laughs> of you <laughs> know cover. Right. Of, lit- of his favorite authors' greatest hits. Yeah, um, and um, you know, one thing I was going to bring up a while ago. I have to wonder how much the chronicles of his so-called decadence was exaggerated, and how much was true, mm. because I don't know if you could even have the modicum of discipline that he had to be able to write this stuff and, you know, take all these damn drugs and, you know, drink as much as he did. I mean, he was an excessive figure. He was almost—I think he definitely—I know he looked up to Ernest Hemingway quite a bit, and he probably wanted to live up to, you know, Hemingway's sort of, you know— Tough guy. Larger-than-life macho image. It was Hemingway that said, uh, yeah,
1: write— drunk edit sober
0: (laughs) (laughs) which i'm pretty sure hunter
2: followed (laughs) right well you're also
0: reminded of uh of uh on the road where kerouac supposedly took a huge amount of speed and wrote the entire book in a single sitting on a single ream of paper like a, a scrolling uh which book on the, on the road, road.
2: Oh, okay. have you seen the scroll? It's not there. It's not even punctuated. It is one long sentence hmm. on a teletype ream. Crazy. Yeah, I've actually seen the scroll, and yeah, it's like, God bless the man who had to edit that.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: he went to my high school, actually. Really? Yes, he did. The editor or Kerouac? Kerouac. Wow.
1: But for all this, for all the sensationalizing that he does in this book. And for all the adventure and crazy wacko stuff, at the heart of it, there's a nostalgia. There's a there's a a, a melancholy,
2: like a feeling of loss, right? This um, man was a patriot, believe it or not, yeah. and he was seeing the America that he loved being destroyed by Richard Nixon, by you know the silent majority, uh, by the forces of the right, and he was trying to look for the original free. Uh, America, the, the 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 land of liberty, you know, and uh, he was greatly dismayed by things like the Vietnam War. By you know, he was, and that is that is definitely at the heart of this book. Um, and you maybe know, you could read us a little excerpt. I actually could because uh, we were talking about that earlier, and there's a there's a there's a it's in chapter eight. It starts out, you know, basically him, and uh, they'd never name the name here, but you can tell he's trying to hit up a neighbor of his, Timothy Leary, for some acid. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't tried acid yet. And um, apparently uh, that doesn't go too well. It's a flashback. But yeah, he goes back to, uh, he, yeah, he ends up uh, going on to uh, talking about how he, when he finally scored. Um, you know, he says, so I stuck with hash and rum for another six months or so until I moved into San Francisco and found myself one night in a place called the Fillmore Auditorium. And that was that one gray lump of sugar and boom, in my mind, I was right back there in the doctor's garden. Not on the surface, but underneath, poking up through that finely cultivated earth like some kind of mutant mushroom, a victim of the drug explosion, a natural street freak just eating whatever came by. I recall one night in the Matrix when a road person came in with a big pack on his back shouting, anybody want some LSD? (laughs) I got all the makings right here. All I need is a place to cook. The manager was on him at once, mumbling, "'Cool it, cool it, come back, come on back to the office.' I never saw him after that night, but before he was taken away, the road person distributed his samples. Huge white spanschules. I went into the men's room to eat mine, but only half at first. I thought, good thinking, but a hard thing to accomplish under the circumstances. I ate the first half, but spilled the rest on the sleeve of my red Pendleton shirt. And then, wondering what to do with it, I saw one of the musicians come in. "'What's the trouble?' he said." Well, all this white stuff on my sleeve is LSD. He said nothing, merely grabbing my arm and... He merely grabbed my arm and began sucking on it. A very gross tableau. I wondered what would happen if some Kingston Trio young stockbroker type might wander in and catch us in the act. Fuck him, I thought. With a little bit of luck, it'll ruin his life. Forever thinking I was just behind some narrow door in all his favorite bars. Men in red Pendleton shirts are getting incredible kicks from things he'll never know. Would he dare to suck a sleeve? Probably not. Play it safe. Pretend you never saw it. But then... It starts to get really poignant. Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Five years later, six, it seems like a lifetime or at least a main era, the kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something. Maybe not in the long run. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time and the world, whatever it meant. History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit, but even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time and which never explain in retrospect what actually happened. My central memory of that time seems to hang on one or five or maybe 40 nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore half crazy instead of going home, aimed the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour wearing L.L. Bean shirts, shorts and a Butte Shepherder's jacket. <laughs> Booming through the treasure island of tunnel at the lights of Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, not quite sure which turnoff to take when I got to the other end, always stalling at the toll gate, too twisted to find neutral while I fumbled for change but being absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was. No doubt about all of that. There was a madness in any direction at any hour, if not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate or down 101 to Los Altos or La Honda. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right and that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable, inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting. On our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark—that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. It's beautiful. Hunter Thompson. <sighs> beautiful. The late great. He's a major reason I'm a writer. Him and Lester Bangs, mm-hmm. and Jack Kerouac, and—and uh, and this is a big reason why. So, it, th- when was the first time you read this? Oh. 1991. Uh, I was 24 years old. I was about six months away from moving to Austin, actually. And, yeah, Um, that had a profound effect on me. I was already a working journalist working nationally for Flipside and uh, for Alternative Press and things Mm. like that. But, yeah, that had an immediate impact on the way I wrote. (laughs) Right. Do you feel like that
1: there are certain subjects that lend themselves to writing like this
2: and certain subjects that shouldn't be written about like this? I don't know. I think you should write everything (laughs) from that perspective, to be honest. And I frequently have a battle with my own editor at... (laughs) You know, uh, uh, the the paper I won't mention, which is my major employer, <laughs> um, they're not so fond of, you know, he's not so fond of Gonzo Flights of Fancy. Uh-huh. But, you know, it's like, yeah, I just, it's just, it's just more honest to me. I, I feel like, you know, especially rock journalism, it's not supposed to be objective. mm um it should be subjective you're you're basically stating your opinion on things sure um i don't know i could see where why maybe somebody like a newsweek or a time wouldn't have hired hunter Mm -hmm. um it had to be take a very special publication to if you wanted hunter thompson writing for you about anything yeah you were going to have to put up with all of this it's like almost like
0: uh hiring someone to to create a work of art rather than a, an actual yes uh well he he because the fact is the man was a journalist he was not a a novelist or something right, and so he clearly had a niche he, there's no way he was going to go and write for the new york times it would it would be absurd he, he he was practicing a form of journalism that was really his own that was he was proudly dispensing with any pretense of objectivity. Mm-hmm which in a way is very admirable because we know as human beings that we can never be objective. And yet at the same time, it cannot be dispensed with this this uh, pretense of objectivity. It's something we actually have to strive for when we try to do journalism most of the time for most reasons. And yeah. for him to to be writing about Watergate for the New York Times instead of Rolling Stone would have been a big mismatch,
1: right? Yeah, as long as you're. I think when it's presented as such, when it's when you know it's not an uh, like an attempt at objectivity, or, um, I mean, it's just like I said, some subjects probably lend themselves to it more than others. Obviously, right? Um, another uh, comparison that I'll have for for the David Foster Wallace thing: uh, consider the lobster. Have you ever read that? Consider the lobster. I have not. So, uh, Gourmet magazine hired him to to cover the Maine lobster fest. And the and, and the, the article sort of devolves into this, like, philosophical, uh, you know, debate about whether or not the, the lobsters can actually feel and think. Um, can you imagine Hunter
2: covering <laughs> the main lobster fest? Right, right. <laughs> but,
1: you know, so, um, but I think there's another comparison I would like to make about, uh, you know, this book is sort of bemoaning a sense of, of you know, loss of innocence. Um, and about, uh, you know, I think the overindulgence is a comment on on the subject matter that he's tackling here. And as is, you know, Infinite Jest is, is another uh, very heartfelt piece about overindulgence and ha- what role that plays in our culture.
2: Oh, yeah. No, he was he was definitely looking at Las Vegas as a symbol of how America had lost its innocence. Mm hmm. Um, he just felt this was a sick, depraved, you know, dot in the middle of the, you know, of well, the, the entire desert.
0: The entire idea that Las Vegas, Nevada, which is a <laughs> town built by gangsters, dedicated to prostitution, gambling, is the heart of the American dream, is itself a political statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's... I love
2: the fact that he actually chronicled an acid trip right in the middle of that hotel lobby and the casino. Right. You know? Yeah. It was like, that's a hell of a filter to be looking, (laughs) a hell of a lens to be looking at things through there, Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. That was why Terry Gilliam was so perfect to do the film adaptation of this book. I
1: was going to ask you your opinion of that. How did, so did you like the movie?
2: I loved the movie. Um, This was coming at a time where a bunch of these books that I partic- that particularly spoke to me for whatever reason, some, certain directors were gr- trying to see if they could make movies out of him. Naked Lunch was a mess, okay? Mm. But Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he really had it down. And uh, I, th- I think Gilliam is the only director who could possibly have pulled
1: that off. Well, I have to be honest with you. When I first put it on, because this this book has been was very dear to me very precious to me and me I was really afraid of how, what they were going to do with it and I had actually uh, I was a big fan of the audiobook that um, Harry Dean Stanton actually read the audiobook and it was mm. fantastic um, so you know coming at it from that point of view I was I, it, they had big shoes to fill for me and the first maybe 10 minutes, I almost turned it off. I thought, they're, they're just not getting it. They have no idea what this book's about. I've got to turn this off. But I stuck with it, and by the time they get to the lobby, I was, <laughs> I was there. I was
0: with them. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm on board. I'll tell you why. Well, I, 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 I did not like the movie, and uh, one of the things, and, but it's not really anyone's fault who is involved with it because they obviously did a very precise job. It's one of the most uh, accurate Filmings of a novel that I've ever seen, you know, it's, it's like page for page, it's really close to it, and everyone all the actors are excellent and so forth and uh but the thing that 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 I have this prejudice when I hear Hunter Thompson talking or Raul Duke talking in that <laughs> book, I hear him sounding like you just
2: sounded <laughs> when he when he, when you
0: were reading that passage, in fact, he sounds like this hey, we went I can't believe it. we went to the and you're like. When I first heard the man speak, it was I had read this book probably ten times before I ever heard him speak, Mm. and he had just a very different style of speaking than I expected, and it was for me it was very disappointing. Well, no, Hunter mumbled,
2: and because he was on a lot of speed all the time, well, he was mumbling very very fast, and you know that (laughs) was. Depp really had. Depp sounded exactly like him. Depp, you know, that was the movie that changed my mind about Johnny Depp. I. I didn't want to know. He was that he was that pretty boy that was on Twenty One Jump right, Street, as yeah, far as yeah, I course. was concerned. And when I heard he was cast as Hunter Thompson, like, you have got to be joking. I felt the same way. But he he sold me, and I know it was because he actually stayed with Hunter for something like six
0: months or something like that, just studying him. Well, uh-huh. he obviously sold Hunter because Hunter had him perform his funeral, right? Is that right? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Fire his, his ashes off into in a rocket or something. <laughs> Well, it was. They had that specially built
2: cannon that was like the freak power symbol. What, what? <laughs> however, <laughs> and yeah, Hunter's ashes were fired from this specially built cannon. <laughs> Brilliant. Gotta love it. Oh man, but yeah, it. This uh, this book just had a profound impact on me, and uh, you know, I go back and revisit it every every few years. Actually, myself. Yes, it holds up. It definitely holds up. It really does. I mean, you know, he uh, not a, honestly, not a lot of Hunter's work, I would say about 75% of it, and it's all the stuff that came after Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72. Doesn't really hold up.
0: He, after a while, he coasted on his own persona, unfortunately. Hmm. He, he coasted was, on it, or, or another theory would just be that he was too locked into it right, that he couldn't get out of it because he knew how brilliant he had been and that that's what people wanted from him. And yet it's, a little goes a long way, right? I mean, it's a great, great, great book. But then 30 years later to be writing Fear and Loathing, whatever the book was called um in the 80s, you know, about Bush or something, it's like, well, okay. It's it just, <laughs> you, uh, you didn't... He needed to evolve, but how could he evolve when he had created this masterpiece? He'd created a persona for himself. I mean,
2: there was one particular instance. I think he needed a good subject to inspire him, to be honest. Yes. Uh, The best thing that I'd seen him write before he died was about 10 years before he died. Richard Nixon dies, and Rolling Stone does a special issue on Richard Nixon, and all these people you know, are lauding Richard Nixon as this great statesman. Yeah. Then they turn Hunter S. Thompson loose on Nixon. And if I recall correctly, his first words were, I have come not to praise Richard Nixon. (laughs) I've come to rip the brazen fucker right out of his grave and stomp all over his entrails, that
0: venal fuck. (laughs) It was pure vintage Thompson. And Although, of course, the one time they met... He had a positive experience with him talking about football. They talk about football. <laughs> college football. Yeah, the Redskins. One thing they had in common, they were both incredibly passionate, serious st- students of college football and in sports in general. And oh, Thompson yeah. was a gambler and a fanatic for sports. Absolutely he was. Like I said, he was really a very much a man's man. I mean, really, yeah. You think from, from a casual, uh, even listening to this episode, you might get the impression that Thompson was a hippie no, uh, he was a flower child or something like that. It was just the opposite. He was a motorcycle riding, gun toting <laughs> lunatic. <laughs> yes, he was. He he loved guns. He loved them. He loved to shoot them. You know, he he would do things like put up gongs all over his lands in Colorado and shoot them all morning. You know, just to the great consternation of his neighbors. Yes,
2: exactly. <laughs> it uh, at Owl Farm up there in Colorado, where apparently he never paid a cent of rent
0: uh-huh.
2: he had some sort of agreement with his landlord and he just lived there rent free his entire life
0: brilliant <laughs> you
2: know <laughs> but,
1: uh, Well, it made a lot of sense to me when when we invited you to come on and you had suggested uh, talking about this book it 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 just it hit a chord i think this was a a perfect a perfect subject for you um, we could talk all day but we've got to hit our our lightning round, round. Oh, lightning
2: round yes. okay Are you ready I, get, I, I think I am. Okay, let's do
1: this. When was the first time you remember falling in love with a book? First time I remember falling in love with a
2: book? That would be Catcher in the Rye.
1: Okay, yeah. Good answer. What, what Around what time?
2: 14 years old, I guess. So yeah. What, yeah. like eighth grade, something like that. Right, right. Yeah.
1: Good one. Okay, has a book ever changed your mind about anything?
2: Has a book ever changed my mind about anything? No, but bu- I don't think it has, but books have uh, have affected my entire life and my entire worldview. Mm. That's for sure. But okay. I don't know if it's ever changed my mind on anything I can think of. Well, that's kind of the answer to the next question, which is, has a book ever changed your life? Every book I've ever read probably has. But yeah, this one changed my life. Uh, on the Road changed my life. Mm. Um. Howl by Allen Ginsberg, that little collection of the poems that came out on City Lights, that changed my life. England's Dreaming by John Savage. Right, yeah, yeah. My, 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 that's the best punk book in my opinion, and it's kind of a role model for the book I'm currently writing.
0: I know. That's it's what we book need- called?
2: It's going to be called You Never Understand What We're Trying to Say. I am <laughs> writing the history of Austin punk rock from I 75 to the present. It's being serialized in the Chronicle uh much like fear and loathing was in rolling stone as well as bonfire the vanities and that was kind of what my editor had in mind nice and uh yeah the first chapter was ran last month in two parts it was on rocky Erickson, doug Sum, and the first austin punks record which was two-headed dog wow i love it that's great so do you have an eta for uh, when the book will be finished a long time from now, but you know, we're, we're writing, uh, I'm in, as I keep telling people that I'm contacting for interviews, I'm in 1975 still right gotcha, now, but gotcha. you know, next chapter should be up in November. Okay. It's going to be on the untold history of Austin glam rock actually. Nice.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. So, uh, has a book ever made you cry?
2: <sighs> Girl Interrupted. Ah. And The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. The Bell Jar.
1: Mm. Yes,
2: I like it. Okay, Uh, name a book that you've read more than once. England's Dreaming by John Savage. Okay, of course. Absolutely. Of course, right. And this one. Yes. Fear Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Right. Keeps you coming back.
1: Do you have any poetry
2: committed to memory? That's the big one. I have a snippet of one that I can think of right now. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by n- madness running hysterical through the Negro streets of dawn.
0: That's Ginsburg Howell. Yep.
2: Howell, Beautiful. right. America, go fuck yourself with your <laughs> atom bomb.
0: <laughs>
1: Fantastic. That concludes our lightning round with Tim Stegall. Thanks for being here. Yes,
2: thanks
0: to Tim Stiegel. Thank you for having me, guys. Great Anything to else have we you. need to, to uh, uh, promote here?
2: Anything else we want to talk up? When is this running?
0: Very soon. The next couple of days.
2: Next couple of days? Well, Thursday night, Carousel Lounge, uh, Tim, yes. Tim Napalm's birthday bash. Yay! I'm 54 on stage at the carousel this Thursday Fantastic. night. Fantastic. Okay. And uh Going to be joined by uh, my old colleague, Ron Williams, who began the corp- the Austin version of The Hormones with me. Uh, nice. We're going to be, as I, as we joke every year, it's going to be two old guys giving each other shit and sweating to the oldies. And then um, there's a couple of side projects that are uh, going to be open, opening the show. The Friends of Ron Reyes, that's basically... Uh, our version of a classic Hermosa Beach punk band that are playing across town. All right. we will not name names, <laughs> and uh, the and the ruptured scumbags, the worst cover band you could ever imagine.
0: I love it. That, how do so you make a hormone?
2: <laughs> oh, God, you would have to ask me that one. That's, let's see, how many times is that? I've been asked that one. How do you make a hormone? You tell me that joke. <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> you invite uh, de Kruijsson to, to Corpus. That's how you make a yes, hormone. That's right.
1: <laughs> You're correct. <laughs> so that's uh, September the
0: 12th? September the 12th, Carousel Lounge. Fantastic. I love it. Um, what else, L.B.? Well, just a reminder, in addition to the Carousel Lounge, we have on the 21st of September the release of The Goddamn Fool by me. Uh, It is a new novel. It is coming out at Malvern Books at 7 p.m. the 21st. Be there or I'll suffer and die.
1: Be there, buy a book, (laughs) get it signed, chat it up. Uh, and in the meantime, while you're waiting, you can go to our website, which is pov-publishing.com. There you can read essays, poetry, comics. You can follow the link to any of our podcasts and the link to amazon.com, where you can buy my book, Why
0: So Much, by Lance Myers. I think you'll be pretty surprised and impressed if you go to pov-publishing.com. There really is some fantastic writing and some really terrific comics in addition to this great podcast and the Why So Much. Go. Love it. Go. Go and do likewise. (laughs) Thank you to Union Brooks for his intern excellence. Thank you, Tim Stegall. Always a pleasure. Great to see you again. Great to see you, man. It's been, what, 25 years? 25 years. Is that all? Yeah.
2: Wow. Only 10 with you and I,
1: I (laughs) think. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye.
0: Bye.